You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. Now, listening to this, you might have wondered whether we would ever feature a journalist who didn't work for Bloomberg. The answer is, we'll talk to anyone, if they're interesting enough. And Martin Wolf of the Financial Times definitely fits into that category. He's been the Financial Times senior economic commentator for as long as I've been involved with economics. We even worked together there back in the day. What he writes gets read by most of the people who count. And lately, like a lot of us, he's found himself writing less about economics and more about politics and populism. How it's shaping the economic landscape today and what policymakers might do in response. So I was delighted to have a conversation with him about this on stage earlier this week at the Resolution Foundation, a London-based think tank, at an event organised by the British Society of Professional Economists. It was such a wide-ranging chat, we decided to devote this programme to it. I started by pointing out there were quite a lot of different definitions of populism out there. For some economists, it seemed to be just anything political and non-mainstream that might cause trouble. For others, it was a toolkit of techniques for unscrupulous politicians, not really an ideology. Of course, Marxists would say it's when the ruling elite persuades workers to vote against their own self-interest. I asked Martin which definition of populism he found most useful. I think there are two ways of thinking about this. One is populism is what politicians, whom we everybody would agree are populists, do. And that's quite a wide range of things. Um, but I would argue that there is one common thread to all populism, be it of the left or the right, which is the mobilization of people politically, often in response to various uh, economic and social stresses, against existing elites. The essence of the common element of this is anti-elitism. And that allows you and the policies that are seen and the systems that are seen as to favouring elites. Um, that's what populists argue they're doing. So the main point to make about this is when we think about the political direction of and origins of populism, it's very complicated and you have to anchor 
your ideas about it, I think, very much in the context of your own society, country, and work out whether the forces un unleashed here are on the whole going to prove to be or could be made beneficial or going to be utterly destructive of existing, functioning, valid and important institutions. And there's plenty we can unpack on that, but just to insert a few facts, um, because I've got economists at my disposal, and this is an audience of economists, they have done various studies thinking about just what share of G20 GDP is currently in the hands of populist governments. And they actually have a, there's a catch-all, uh, which is they actually talk about populists and non-democratic regimes and put them together, which is startling. But you can also look at the populists together. So the populists or non-democratic regimes, even in 2016 about 33% of G20 GDP was in the hands uh, of populists or non-democrats. And that's up from about 10% around the time of the crisis. Um, uh, but most recently, it's now gone up to 68%. So 68% of, of G20 GDP in the hands of non-democratic regimes or populists. Now, of course, for our purposes, we might be interested in just the populists, uh, and that's 43% now versus 8%. And actually, if you look at the European elections, actually the share of populist parties was a bit smaller in the last European election. It's gone up for, to 28%. But we're, still, we're talking a sort of slightly smaller number when you just look across the European political scene. But it is certainly... We're not, we have not seen what I think some people were hoping to see in the last few years, that somehow there'd been a sort of turnaround, a peak populism moment. I think you still haven't seen a populist government being defeated in subsequent polls. If you look in the Czech Republic, Romania, Hungary, Turkey, they've all been re-elected, which I think is telling. Sarita is the exception to this, but you could argue that's because they stopped being very populist. They started actually following the rules of, of the system. Um, but this is including lots of different things in the mix. You know, it is including Podemos and Syriza and Trump and Bolsonaro. The right-wing populists tend to be a bit more... Do they include populist. Modi as a populist? Uh, they do, yeah. So... It's getting this, quite a... This is part of the problem. Actually, I should go and check how you define... Really that, how so, you define I mean, I should check that. I'm not sure about Modi. I think we have... We did, I had debates with them even about Trump because you could argue, you know, he's part of a... He's in a mainstream party, whether you like it or not. But anyway, um, or he's taken over a mainstream party. But it, that all does run together a lot of left, right-wing yeah. populists. And it sort of seems to me that the right-wing populists these days are doing a lot better than the left-wing populists. But does it matter the difference? Should we think differently about them? Uh, right-wing populists will emphasise the nation and or the ethnicity against other nations and ethnic groups. Um, and the left-wing um, tends, tends to be conservative and hierarchical within this structure and quite happy with extreme inequality, as Trump is showing. And left-wing populists will tend to vote, be much more egalitarian as I said, class-based. Uh, and in Latin American history, they've had both pretty equally. But in this, in European history, and particularly in the recent times, the right populists have basically done much better than the left-wing populists. It is relevant. I mean, when you get onto the differences of right and left, obviously then it becomes relevant 
for thinking about whether there could be positive consequences from populism or or not. And it did strike me when I was thinking about this that populists, when you look back in the history, are a bit like that difference between freedom fighters and terrorists. It sort of depends on whether the system ended up better at the end or not. And if we thought that they made the system better, as for example, the populists maybe in the late 19th century, and certainly the populist movements in the US, uh, which helped trigger the New Deal or put pressure uh, to produce the New Deal institutions. We look at them and we say, well, that was kind of good populism. So we think of it in a different category, clearly, uh, than the populism which culminated in National Socialism and Hitler's Germany. Um, But that kind of gets to this point of, is is it ultimately about changing the system for the better or fundamentally undermining it. And I sort of, it, it feels like the jury's, the kind of populism we're seeing now seems to feed on the sort of reduced credibility of democratic institutions. And certainly in the case of President Trump often seems to revel in that. Uh, but it is also, as you say, pointing in the direction of some policies that might be a good idea. I think the, in terms of the benefits of actual potential populist pressures, you can perhaps think about it in two possible ways. Uh, historically. So first, in very dangerous situations where people are very unhappy for very many different reasons at different points in history, there have been pretty standard democratic politicians who have responded effectively. Uh, In the US case, the two most remarkable cases are the two Roosevelt's. Uh, the both essentially in American terms aristocrats who um, in the case of Theodore responded to all this upwelling of pressure against the trusts and all the rest of it to introduce some really quite radical antitrust policies particularly and other um, similar things and then of course FDR. Um, so first you can have sensible responses by conventional politicians I think the EU has basically handled this terribly uh, because they handled the crisis terribly and that has tended to make the unhappiness, you know, why do we have Salvini instead of Mario Monti? There's no surprise about that. Mario Monti was set up to fail. Now, uh, so that's one thing. And uh, and the worst case of this in the history of the world, I think, is uh, the move, you know, Hitler was, in my view, a direct consequence of Bruni. Um, it's quite obvious he was. I've written about this many times. In 1930, there was no chance of Hitler winning an election. He had a minuscule share of the vote. Uh, I think it was about 7%. I can't remember the exact thing, something like that. And he was got a third three years later. No wonder. I mean, he com- Brunning collapsed the economy. So the way democratic politicians respond really, really matters. Going for Brexit as a solution to all this was insane. But there we are. This is where we are. The second thing, of course, can populists themselves do good things? Um, Well, it depends on what you mean um, by populists. I'm sure if I think hard, I could think of some examples where populists have tended, have done well. But the usual problem with populists in power is they don't recognize, because it's something, they don't trust the elites at all. So they don't trust elite mantra about, you know, resource limits, budgetary constraints and all the rest of it, confidence in business, so they basically smash the economy. Um, I'm trying to think very hard of whether there's an obvious case 
where somebody we'd all agree was a populist leader um, really succeeded in leaving a much stronger economy than that person inherited a much stronger society. I think it's rather rare. By and large, successful reformers, including radical reformers, are far more disciplined and self-disciplined than populist leaders tend to be. I guess we get back to that question, that sort of definition around the toolkit. We have, if you, you do see successful, quote unquote, mainstream leaders who are successful because in a populist era they've borrowed some of the clothes or some of the techniques of populism. And in fact, you might have said that about President Macron with Omar. Yeah, Marsh, it is. Oh, but yes. it made it, 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 it pull off the fantastic trick, at least for a while, of making profoundly mainstream centrist policies look exciting and, and radical. radical. Well, FDR was radical. I mean, he bust the gold standard. That's big stuff in America. Uh, but he was radical in an extraordinarily dis- self-disciplined or interestingly disciplined way. Really great politicians know how to handle these problems in those situations, and they are unfortunately not that common. And in recent times, they haven't existed in the worst. I think you're right, but I think that's not the same. To say that there's no populist leader who has remained through and through a populist leader that has achieved uh, a successful change of regime isn't necessarily the kind of effect that we're looking for because it would often be the case that it's the, it's the pressure of populists. Like in Europe, you have a lot of you know, those, whatever it is, 28% of, Europe, of European MEPs, they actually don't control the European yeah. Parliament. Uh, they contribute to the fragmenting of the system, but it's potentially they are also pushing... European political leaders in the direction of some positive things. That's exactly the point. It's how mainstream politicians respond to populist pressures and the recognition by them that there are real issues that they've got to find clever ways of dealing with, even if they're radical. Radicalism is not the same as populism. I'm strongly in favour of radicalism. Uh, We obviously need it, but we have to have disciplined radicalism. The great thing about the, the really important Swedish Social Democrats in the Thetaga Erlander, for example, probably the most successful reformer, uh, was that he, throughout that long period of of radical reform in Sweden, he knew exactly what he was doing and why. If you look at uh, the main sort of macroeconomic tools that we have in the world today, the sort of default settings, if you like, they're remarkably little changed by the global financial crisis. Are economists a little bit at fault for not producing enough ideas that a future... You know, there's plenty of people running for president on the Democrat side at the moment who like to think they might be the next FDR. You know, you get a lot of explicit references to New Deal. Are they being given the right kind of ideas by economists to turn this into a positive uh, a positive uh, event for, um, and, and make for populist forces actually produce some good on economic policy? I think that we have been extraordinarily inhibited and conventional in our responses, which doesn't mean that changing things will be easy, but recognising there are some very, very big questions and thinking about how we might handle them, some of them very uncomfortable for me and others. So uh, what what are the things that I've been thinking about in the last nine years since the crisis, or 10 years, well, God, it's 12 years now since the crisis. Um, so first of all, pretty obviously, 
um, I was one of the people and remain one of the people who think that all countries that had the means to do so had to get back to full employment as quickly as possible. Um, second, uh, I think we, and I've written this for years, I think that relying on the central bank just to manipulate financial markets rather than directly funding government in these situations is ridiculous. The inhibition on direct monetary financing is ridiculous. Um, I understand the risks with it, but I think it's perfectly workable in a recession stroke depression to go for direct monetary financing, and I think it would have made a difference. I think we have to think very, very seriously about tendencies in the market economy towards anti-competitive structures. I think there's a lot of evidence of declining competition, a lot of evidence in our market economies, um, increased um, monopolies or quasi-monopolies. A lot of them, of course, are foreign, I mean, American particularly, but uh, I think we have to look at that very, very carefully and be much more aggressive on that front. Um, I think we're going to have to be very radical on asset ownership. We are getting quite extreme concentrations of wealth across the world, and we're, that's not compatible, to my mind, with a sustainable democracy. Aristotle said this, I discovered. So um, that means we're going to have to be quite radical about distribution of wealth, Income will follow from that, but actually I think wealth is quite important. The right thing to do is for radical parties to come up with radical ideas. I've been rather depressed by how limited and ill-thought-out and ill-worked-through um, such proposals are. In the American case, I think Elizabeth Warren has been quite interesting. She, But of course there are some things the Americans have to do because what they've got is so crazy, like the health system, that we, we don't have to do. But I think overall, the reaction of policymakers, and I've made this critique in my book, I've had these arguments, uh, and politicians to the obvious problems of our societies have been so limited. There's one final issue, which I have a different view from most, which is I think we have to recognise that immigration is a first-class political issue and we can't view it as a purely economic issue. Um, now, the question then is what a sensible immigration policy would look like that is politically acceptable and manageable is obviously very, very difficult. But pretending that this is an issue that can just be looked at from the pure labour market point of view is, I think, politically very unwise. So there are a lot of big issues out there which the centre, if you like, broadly defined, has to grapple with <laughs> if we're going to have stable democracies. Well, um, Otherwise, we get somebody called Boris Johnson as prime minister. <laughs> and then what the hell is going to happen? <laughs> Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study.
So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So you could say this, the UK and Brexit is an example of where we, it's, it, is, it is simplistic to only be looking at uh, economic causes and economic policies. Um, but I think you're, you are right when you look at the future, you know, the perception of the response to the financial crisis and how weighted that was towards asset markets and how beneficial it was towards uh, for the wealthy, I think will come back to haunt the central bankers when we have the next crisis. And I wonder whether you think they're thinking enough about that, that if the first thing they do is resort again to quantitative easing and the perception of that is it's giving a lot of money to people who already have it, who own these assets, is that going to f- cause a further backlash uh, and we will be dealing with further consequences of the response to the next crisis? First of all, I think your comment on British policy was just uh, on personal remark. I think I do accept that one of George Osborne's great virtues was that he ignored what he said. So, <laughs> so he, while setting this out as a major fiscal crisis, in the end, he um, ignored his own rules reasonably successfully. Um, I still think. We still got- I still think that. He could have done substantially better. There are other things that have happened since the crisis whose origin, um, which I think fall outside this discussion, um, which I simply don't understand. The collapse of productivity growth in the UK is so extreme. And I have yet to read, and please send me anything that you think is relevant, a really convincing explanation of why this has happened to such an extreme degree in this country. We jumped from being America to being Italy, as it were, overnight. That's quite extraordinary. Um, On the future, I think that the central bankers I know are fairly frightened well, they vary between being fairly and very frightened about what would happen, what they would do in another significant crisis or even another significant recession of a crisis because uh, their policy toolbox is pretty constrained, um, to put it mildly. Um, now, there is an argument that the, if you do enough QE of the standard kind, that can be made the equivalent. But given where bond yields are today, um, well, in Germany or Japan, you've got nowhere to go. So in the UK, you don't have much, the US a little bit more. Um, You'd have to buy the whole bond stock. And then I think you'd have to go and buy a pretty good chunk of the equity stock. Uh, I once suggested the Japanese solution would be to buy the whole dollar bond stock. Um, if they're going to do QE in Japan, the sensible thing is not to buy JGBs, but US Treasuries. Just of, think of, of, the tweet that Donald Trump would send God, if they ever did that. And of course, that would solve their problems by crashing the exchange rate. But it's not, of course, a generalizable policy and it would be regarded as a war, uh, an act of war. And in fact, the Americans would make it. So I actually think 
It is almost inconceivable if we have another big recession in this situation that we won't end up with some version of helicopter money. Uh, uh, and as I like to point out, and then we got Steve Keen talking about people's QE. I think he uses that right in Francis Coppola. But helicopter money was invented by Milton Friedman, therefore must be respectable, uh, uh, at least from the right-wing point of view. Um, I don't see what else we would do in that situation except scatter money everywhere. Um, I have a colleague who believes passionately in going to, you know, minus six, minus seven percent interest rates. It's technically possible as long as you completely restructure the way you do banking and you get rid of all cash. That's not where we are now. So it's not a technically possible um, policy. So there is a view, and I've seen the, an economist, many economists will say, OK, so we have this populace and maybe in the long run it's going to be the end of the democratic system. They wouldn't quite put it this way, but maybe in the long run it's undermining all of our values and our institutions and teaching us all the wrong lessons about what leadership is. But short to medium term, it produces looser fiscal policy and slightly looser monetary policy with central banks a bit more aware of the implications of what they're doing than they might have been in the past. And those two things in the current macro environment are not such a bad thing. What would you say about that? I mean, I would also, I would worry a little bit about the, uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, implicit in that. But just on the second part, if we're not so worried about the, long, the future of the world and the democracy, well, here we're presumably really talking about the US. So... Um, you could argue in the, the response to the Gilets Jaunes in France has produced yeah. slightly looser fiscal... It doesn't have to be people in government. Very modestly. Uh, looser fiscal policy in Italy because of concern about... Again, very, very... My, I mean, the EU is a pretty remarkably... So far, this could blow, it up, blow up. I, I don't know what's going to happen with Italy. But... The Eurozone, let's say, which is the has produced a remarkably effective straitjacket. So the, you know, Italian fiscal policy in the last 10 years has been astoundingly disciplined. But in the US, there's a really interesting case because what most of what people would think of was full employment when they had a structural deficit of about 3% of GDP. The president came along and raised it to five, roughly, as a big fiscal expansion by the world's biggest economy, um, which, as I said, has one of the lowest unemployment rates in its history, I think the lowest for a half a century, though that measurement there is difficult. And he's browbeating, or succeeded in persuading the Fed that it's got to start losing again. So that's where you are getting quite a significant expansionary boost. There are two or three questions about this. The first is, of course, the way the deficit was produced, which is a massively regressive tax cut, when you could discuss that, and whether you think the corporate... That's one question. The second question is, is he actually taking quite a sig more significant risk with inflation than we think now? 
We don't know. Um, and the third problem, which uh, uh, is there's something else going on, which you haven't mentioned, which is really the core of Trump's populism as a policymaker, which is he started this, in my view, completely insane trade war. And, uh, and I've just been looking, I've just done a lecture this afternoon to a lot of Chinese people, and I've just had one of my charts. And it shows that if at the end of all this, Mr. Trump does impose the rest of the threat tariffs on China, and certainly that's not inconceivable, then the US overall will have an average tariff, an average tariff, so that because of the tariffs he's imposed on China and other countries, which puts in well more protectionist than India and slightly below Brazil. Now, that's a big deal, right? This is the world's most important economy. That changes the whole system. Do you think you can preserve anything like an open trading system if the US goes AWOL to that degree? So I think people who just focus on America, which is basically business, and say, well, he's given us these huge tax cuts and I can increase what I pay myself and my, my shares are worth more, are, to put it mildly, very short-sighted because he's blowing up the, the whole parts of the world system which I regard as beneficial and, above all, are very fragile. And, and that's what, we also, we that's know what that populists US, do. And US households, prospectively, will lose more from the tariffs. Yes, of course. Of course. Most Americans will lose more from the tariffs than they will gain from the tax cuts. I'm not sure that we've established whether populism is the end of all the salvation of Both. democracy. We or either. Or either, or maybe the salvation of economics, even if it's not the salvation of liberal democracy. Thank you very much, everyone, for being here. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on-the-ground insights into the global economy and more Bloomberg reporters. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review our show so it can reach more people. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics through the week, follow at Economics on Twitter, and you can also find me on at MyStephanomics. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson, with special thanks to Martin Wolf and everyone at the Society of Professional Economists and the Resolution Foundation for making that conversation possible, especially Katie Abberton, Liberty York and Kevin Daly. Our executive producer is Scott Landman, and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Lee. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, let's face it, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. There's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.